This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I want to say a couple of words about the Stein Institute and the Center before I introduce Dr. Zironis. As most of you know, the UC San Diego Center for Healthy Aging is dedicated to development and application of latest advances in biomedical and behavioral sciences that are relevant to successful or healthy aging. The Stein Institute for Research on Aging was established back in 1983. It is the oldest institute on aging in the entire University of California campus. So you can see that UCSD was always ahead of the game in terms of research on aging. And we have been sponsoring this public lecture series for the last 30 years. The Center for Healthy Aging is a more recent development. Started about three years ago, three, four years ago, and it is the only center of its kind in that it brings together School of Medicine, School of Engineering, School of Pharmacy, School of Management, as well as Social Sciences, Biological Sciences, Arts and Humanities. So really we are very proud to have this one-of-a-kind, unique institute and Center for Healthy Aging. And our focus is on research, training, and community outreach. These public lectures, uh, which we have on a monthly basis and we broadcast on UCSD TV and YouTube, they're supported entirely through private donations. And if you want to look at the past lecture, log on to aging.ucsd.edu. And now, in just a couple of minutes, I want to introduce our speaker. If I were to really introduce him in detail, it will take me an hour itself. Dr. Zironis is Associate Vice Chancellor for Health Sciences and Professor of Psychiatry at UC San Diego. We recruited him uh, less than a year ago, and one of the smartest things the UCSD has done. Um, He was previously Chair of Psychiatry at University of Massachusetts in Boston. Dr. Zironis is an addiction psychiatrist internationally recognized for research in co-occurring mental illness and addiction, especially wellness and recovery-oriented interventions, including those that are relevant to spiritual health and mindfulness, the topic of his talk today. He has been continuously funded for 25 years, including 112 research grants, including 28 as a principal investigator. And these have resulted in more than 300 publications. So really very productive and creative work. He served as an advisor to President Bush's, the first um, President Bush, New Freedom Commission on Mental Health, and also has been on numerous other national and global initiatives, including research in UK, China, Latvia, Italy, and Denmark. He was a visiting professor at, and listen to this, Princeton Theological Seminary 
for seven years, including co-teaching courses on spirituality and health and on faith and addiction. So now you can understand why he is speaking on a topic like this. And his work at the seminary, the Princeton Theological Seminary, brought attention to spirituality and healthy aging, including the role that spirituality plays in helping addiction and mental health recovery. So please give me a hand in welcoming Dr. Zero Nisir. It's uh, a passion of mine to think about this topic. All of us have backgrounds. Even a name like Zidonis comes from somewhere. Uh, it means springtime in Latvia, uh, where my parents were born. Uh, so uh, this, this will be fun tonight. I want us to sort of think of some questions because you're going to be asked to provide some wisdom and in addition to me summarizing the field and literature and experience and, and doing some activities today. But from your perspective, what is spirituality? What is spiritual health? How would you know you're in that mode? All of us have also had some spiritual distress how would you know if you had a loved one or family that member that might be in spiritual distress? Uh, all of you have some type of faith background, potentially. Uh, it may be an important part of your spirituality, and we'll talk about spirituality versus religiosity or religion uh, in this discussion. So for today's topic, we're also thinking about healthy aging, which starts you know, when you're young and you keep getting older, and that's aging. There's also healthy dying and how we think about where spirituality might fit in into that context. And can there be a healthy dying? How do you do self-checks? Do you do self-checks? Probably most of us think of our physical health and getting checkups and our mental health maybe, our cognitive health, but what about our spiritual health? What about others? Now, we are in a medical school environment, and even though... There may be some physicians in the room, because I know a few of you, uh, but most of you are coming not here as a medical school class, although I've had the pleasure to be able to teach uh, thousands of medical students about the topic of spiritual health and spiritual assessment and bring that into the curriculum, particularly since it's now required by the group that actually accredits hospitals, the Joint Commission of Accreditation of Hospitals, that organization actually now requires a spiritual assessment. So when you go to the hospital, they should be including that and in understanding your cultural background and what might be uh, helpful to you. So I'm going to reflect on what clinicians now think about and how they're starting to bring it in. Uh, my sister uh, is a chaplain, and a lot of the literature on spiritual assessment comes from chaplains as they fit into a hospital and say, well, Everybody else has an assessment tool. We've got to come up with one, too. Uh, and so how do we think of how that also goes into the medical research? So as we think of longevity science and as people are uh, studying uh, different factors that help people to uh, do a higher quality of life and uh, live longer, what might, what might there be as a factor that's not biological? What are some of the non-biological factors? It's important to look at both. And the last would be, we'll do some reflecting on how might we all think of our own spiritual health and how to enhance it, and how that might fit in with our personal wellness. So I'm learning from everybody here at UCSD. It's an amazing place, uh, faculty, the students. So 
this is a slide Dillip gave me. And I want to give him a big thanks for the great work he's doing. And he has such a terrific team uh, also here. And so what I love is I'm right at the intersection of this life here. So he's, he's trying to study physical health and mental well-being over the time. So here's the physical health. Uh, you know, sadly, it goes down over time. And the opposite occurs that your well-being goes up. So I'm right at that interface. So my health is going to go down, but the good news is my well-being is going up, according to Dillip. So then Dillip's thinking, okay, what am I going to prescribe for folks to provide healthy aging and wellness at the, at the Stein Center? So part of it's in a prevention mode, exercise five times a week, maybe a Fitbit or some type of mobile device, a healthy diet, sleep hygiene, meditation or some form of prayer or self-reflection, uh, space, reading, video games, volunteering, and then he added some new pills. So make sure to go to the doctor and ask for the resilience pill and the spirituality pill. So before I want you to think about your own perspective on uh, spiritual health, here's a definition from the World Health Organization. Uh, and this came out in 2011, so you can see where some of the timeline is as people becoming more interested in this topic. Uh, so be, spiritual health, the state of being where an individual is able to deal with day-to-day life in a manner which leads to realization of one's potential, meaning, purpose, happiness, and life. So in those words, we're not seeing religion itself, even though religion may be important in a particular person's background. And in the World Health Organization definition, the idea of self-evolution, self-actualization, transcendence are words put in. But those are you know, just what they are, words. Here's a chaplain at the University of Chicago. I like this model because it's one I can remember regularly. Uh, of thinking of different dimensions of spiritual uh, health. So think in your own sense of what that might mean to you. A belief or meaning, a sense of vocation, obligation, a powerful experience or emotion, perhaps that inner courage and growth might be ritual and practice, and that's where religion fits in and provides a structure for which other dimensions of spirituality might be important. For some people, this could be a very critical part. Also, the sense of community and connection with others, whether it's in the same faith group. It's interesting with meditation. I was at UMass before, and that had the Center for Mindfulness, and also UCSD has a Center for Mindfulness. And so I have my own mindfulness practice and learning mindfulness-based stress reduction I remember one of the teachers I had said, you know, while you're meditating, just think there are millions of other people meditating around the world at the same time, and at that moment, that's your sense of community and connection. It stuck with me as a, as a way of not just being a, a life of isolation. Also, authority and guidance. So some people are more of the Old Testament belief of God and some more of the New Testament. So kind of a tough higher power or perhaps uh, one of love and understanding. So when we look at patients, and this is what I have to help doctors understand, that for many people, 
spirituality is seen as a very uh, potent resource. Uh, the patients like to have this as part of their treatment. Again, not everybody. Maybe people who came to this uh, presentation, you came for a reason. There was something that attracted you to think of today. When you look at the literature, uh, religious coping can both be predictive of better mental and physical health, but there are also some studies where it's not predictive of better health. So research in this area is early on. More of the studies are more positive, but it also depends on how you define spirituality and what outcomes you're looking at. So this is just an example of some of the literature that's out there that summarizes how uh, religious coping, spiritual health, can link with better outcomes for physical health, mental health. Here are some studies as it relates to mental health, looking at veterans and hospital patients, uh, people bereaving, uh, physical abuse, uh, parents with children of handicap, uh, how many of them report uh, that religious coping is very helpful to them. Again, some can frame it as religious, some as spiritual. Also, people with serious mental illness. I remember as a young psychiatrist, uh, my mentors saying, don't, don't talk to him about religion. You know, that might cause something crazy to occur. Uh, as if we can't have both difficult thoughts as well as spiritual thoughts. And how we can uh, link, and, and now we know, understand that those are important for all of us as humans. Also, I think when I work with physicians and talking about this space, that this is really a sacred space that you're entering when you're talking with others about uh, spirituality. So amongst your family members, this might be more routine, or maybe as uh, kids start, I've got two kids, uh, one in college at UC Berkeley and one out and living her life as a a young adult, uh, getting a master's and working in a hospital. I don't know, the same conversations that we might have today that we might have had 10 years ago uh, are different as they individuate. So there are different times where these conversations are more routine and maybe understood or not understood. Uh, There could be different inner practices, and think of what you might do in your own lives. Also, uh, do you see this as part of your own Transformation. The, when I was serving on President Bush's New Freedom Commission report, up till that time, mental illness had been sort of like a downward course and it's all bad and things are going to get worse, versus the idea of recovery, of how people can live a life of quality, live a life of transformation and, and doing better and uh, having meaning and purpose in their life. And from that uh, uh, document and that work, the language of recovery became now commonplace in mental health treatment uh, settings and giving more of that sense of hope. And uh, you see that in the addiction recovery community much more regularly, and I'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, This could also be part part of someone's cultural background, Uh, your own personal backgrounds of your religious faith, Sometimes it's complicated and mixed by different families, and sometimes it uh, seems more simple. A source of support, a higher power. So we're really trying to encourage medical students and doctors to be more engaged in this process, and only you know, you know whether the ripples affect, affecting your own care. 
From the point of view of spirituality and healthy aging, uh, there's a growing literature. Uh, most of them have a positive association of uh, more spiritual health, that there are better outcomes as it relates to social support, which might be a mediator or could be an outcome. Uh, quality of life, being better, longer lives, better psychological health and re- resilience in difficult times. Uh, even cognitive functioning has look, been looked at with this factor. Uh, financial security has been looked at. Might not necessarily think of as a link. Uh, also the capacity to manage change. Uh, life is full of change all the time, and even death. Uh, there are gender differences. As, one, uh, as folks get older, there are... Uh, probably reflective of this room if you look at the ratio of women to men. Uh, as I quickly give a, a quick scan, it's uh, higher levels of spiritual health in women of the studies that have been reported. But for both who have more spiritual health, the, the stronger link with outcomes. And also, what is as people get older and uh, families support folks as they're getting older, uh, what is the importance of spirituality for families and how does one look at that in addition to one as an individual. Another thing that's interesting to me is if you look at the literature and articles is how global the interest is. You can find studies in all faiths all over the world of people with various amounts of money trying to figure out how does that fit in for our culture? So whether it's Islamic or from... Buddhism, India, China, Latvia, Europe, Africa, all over the world, there is a growing literature of interest in this area. So your interest, my interest is sort of matched in looking at this. Now, this is an area where we need more funding and research. Sometimes there are uh, foundations that have resources that have put uh, funding in this area. Although there's ways to just hijack resources by adding variables, questionnaires to bigger studies. And that's what I would encourage researchers to do uh, early on. So we need more research. uh, But what would be the right assessment? I'll show you some of the tools that are used uh, in clinical settings, but there are a range of them used in different research settings. Could there be a biological marker? So I was involved in doing some studies on mindfulness at UMass. And some of it was just to see if, we, if people go in a mindfulness program, would that help their health in a different way? But the NIH said, you know, it's nice that you're doing that, but could you find a biologic or marker? Could you find some place in the brain where it changes? Because we'd like to be able to have something concrete. We don't just want to have a simple survey that somebody says, oh, I feel more mindful than I did before. Uh, So I'll show you some of the results that we found. So it's interesting that people are also looking for a biology. uh, And so one can get reductionistic or one can get less reductionistic. I I tend to think of the full range. So we need more studies, and we need to think about, could this be an important part of a mechanism of some of the other outcomes we're looking at, even if they are a biological outcome, such as cancer and the treatment of cancer? Uh, how might spiritual practice or support or interventions targeted at at enhancing spiritual health or 
addressing spiritual distress help improve outcomes? Uh, mindfulness has been one that's had particular focus, probably because it's not linked to any one uh, religion and is seen more broadly as spirituality. Um, in addition to a, a great medical school here, we're also in the process of creating a new school of public health. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that because if you think of public health, how we can address many people in a population and communities versus the clinical health that might be you and your doctor, uh, there's a gray zone in the middle that's getting uh, more and more linked together. And UCSD really has a great opportunity to link public health and clinical health. And spirituality could also be part of that uh, bridge. And clearly, the community-based activities, faith-based. So I'm going to ask you all to... uh, We're going to do a little reflection ourselves now. So I'm going to encourage you to uh, sit upright, get in a comfortable position. I invite you to close your eyes if that feels okay with you. Just notice the support of the chair holding you up, securing your body. Maybe just notice if there's any pains or just sensations, tingling in your feet, touching of your skin to your clothes. Just being curious. Thoughts will come in and out of your mind. Just sort of let them go. Think of your, just notice your body. Now I'm going to invite you to notice where you feel your breath. No need to change your breath. Notice on the inhalation, perhaps it's in your nose and the exhalation. The air goes in and out of your nose. Perhaps it's in your chest as it expands and contracts. Perhaps it's at your belly button or above that as your abdomen moves out and in. Try to just stay focused on your breath. Your mind may drift. Just bring it back to your breath with compassion, just knowing we're all human here in the room. So your mind, of course, will drift and bring it back. So while we're in the bit of a meditation here, we're going to shift into a reflection. I'd like you to reflect on someone who you felt had good spiritual health or when you were in good spiritual health. What was that like for you? Or what did you notice in others? An image might pop in your mind. It could be a person symbol. Perhaps it's a thought. Be curious. You know, you weren't prepared for this. Anything could have popped in your mind. Just note it and let it go. See what else might arise. All right, I'm going to now 
invite you to open your eyes. There'll be some images on the wall that you can see. So you could just notice now, how's my mind right now? Some of you will be saying, oh, I feel pretty calm. Some of you will say, oh, I'm, I feel like I'm ready to sleep. Others of you might say, my mind was just bopping all around. What was he talking about, calm? So there, there's so many different experiences that could have occurred. So see the image and see what pops in your mind. Again, we're all different in the room, so for different reasons, different symbols, different pictures will will raise different emotions or thoughts. Some will attract you. Some might even repel you. Just noticing. Some you might not even have an idea of why it might be on the wall. That's not San Diego Bay. All right, so um, just hold some of that that was in your mind that popped in and out. I'm just going to actually open it up to the audience. Uh, Throw out any words that when you did the um, exercise with noticing your breath, what did you notice? Breath. You notice your breath. Good. Peacefulness. Heartbeat. Heartbeat. Feeling guided. Feeling guided. Nature. Nature. Difference of temperature. Difference in temperatures. Darkness. Darkness. Sleepy. Sleepy. Relaxation. Relaxation. Anybody have a busy mind? A few I could see a few heads going this way. Most not, but that's just how it is. All right. Um, We're teaching physicians and clinicians how to bring mindfulness into their lives, into their clinical practice, hopefully to be more attentive to you uh, when you're in the room where you're the focus, uh, how to enhance their intentionality. Uh, And this is also helpful for their leadership abilities. We all know when we're in a room where someone's not paying attention. And how do we uh, enhance our self-awareness when we're not attentive? So for me, it's been helpful as a leader, noticing when I'm starting to think of the next meeting or the meeting I was in before this meeting. So how does one stay present in the moment? And could that respect for others be part of a spiritual connection is a question. So there's also a literature around emotional health and emotional intelligence. So you like uh, QI, there's 
uh, or IQ, there's uh, EI, emotional intelligence. And there are different ways to assess this. And that's right now a hot topic in leadership development. And uh, also thought of as one component of spiritual health, being present and attentive and more aware. Uh, I've had the uh, honor to be with His Holiness the Dalai Lama at different times in Rutgers and here when they were at UCSD, came and walked through our simulation center. Now, can you imagine this? Uh, I'm like two weeks on the job. My boss says, go down to the simulation center here where we, the students are learning. And the elevator opens, and His Holiness comes in and pokes his head around the corner. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm at UCSD. Uh, but the conversation, you can just feel both he's, the humor as well as the presence uh, dur- during his visit. But many people in this room have that uh, presence. Even just as I'm hanging out with you today, I can feel that for many of you. Uh, if I'm doing a great job, you'll, you'll be attentive half the time. So uh, when people get coached in their leadership ability, this is one of the assessments that's used, the EQI2. But as one looks at these different dimensions, and these, there are structured tools that have reliability and other words that we use to say that it's a reasonable test, uh, self-perception, self-expression, interpersonal connections to others, ability in making decisions, uh, and stress management are all thought to be emotional intelligence. So how does spirituality and emotional intelligence link? It's not the same, but how does it link? We're focused on spirituality tonight, but what about words like compassion, empathy, respect, engagement, connection, longevity science, there's a fancy one, wisdom. Dillip's going to have a big conference in June People from all over the country and world are going to come and talk about wisdom. Maybe we should be talking and thinking about wisdom in healthcare more. Quality of life, healthy aging, healthy dying. End of life. So mindfulness, we did a little exercise. How many of you have done it before? So about half of you. Uh, this is John Kabat-Zinn while I was at UMass, hanging out with him. So when you were noticing in the chair or when you would notice with your breath, you were paying attention in a very focused way. So if someone comes into the room and you're listening to the well, that's the trigger. Uh, Trying to be very present. Uh, Sometimes we judge ourselves. We're our worst critic. So we have that little chatter inside. Why aren't I meditating better? Or why aren't I listening better? Or whatever critical voice can pop up for all of us. So how does one have compassion to self as well as others? And being curious as things unfold. So there's a growing literature on mindfulness. I hear a number of large uh, uh, reviews of the existing literature that's out there. Uh, Many different trials. Uh, there are spinoffs of the mindfulness-based stress reduction that have looked at people with depression, cognitive therapy, or people with substance abuse problems using relapse prevention. There's an app craving to quit for people trying to quit smoking where mindfulness is used. 
uh, also with food addiction and overeating is also being brought in. So people have been then saying, let's look at the biological changes. There's been less of this in spirituality, so I'm bringing in mindfulness as the angle to think about it. And could we do the same in uh, looking at spiritual health, looking at how does the electricity of the brain change? How does the structure change? How does the function change? What parts of the brain? And uh, would it be good to have less anxiety being linked with changes in the amygdala, as an example? So here was a a study that I was involved with with Carl Fulweiler, uh, looking at people who are very experienced in mindfulness and how might their brains be different than those who weren't uh, having a mindful practice. And now imagine when you're just sitting still. Do you think your mind's just blank? No. So there's when you are in the fMRI machine, there's the default network when you're supposed to be doing nothing, and of course you're doing something. So that is a part of the area of the brain that they're looking at, and there are differences when you have a mindfulness experienced background. So we have our school of medicine, and we're looking to the future. We're looking always for cutting edge. These are a lot of the common topics the medical students now are learning here at UCSD. And hopefully that's going to enhance the care that you experience. But I raise as a question, how might we bring in spirituality? How does spiritual health is a requirement? How would an audience like this, if I had a group of medical students in the front row here, and you were the advisors, what would be your advice? What would you be helping these students as they're on their journey to try to help many people? What would you say to them? Public health is going so global. Here we have Scripps Institution of Oceanography, climate change. Anybody in the room worry about malaria in San Diego? Not yet. Not yet. If you believe some of the climate change uh, predictions, there will be a lot of different things that are going to occur over the next 20 years. So things that we aren't expecting. So how are we going to prepare for some of those climate change uh, going on. But this is also a window to think about global issues. Spirituality is a global issue and our uh, links to each other. Uh, And also public health tends to look at prevention. So we're putting together our next generation of school public health, and these are some of the themes that we're very interested in, climate change, population health, uh, of whole geographies, of mental health and addictions, putting that as an important healthy aging and end of life, longevity science is going to be one of our important themes. So the work that Dillip's doing with his team and the IBM Center on main campus and many others are going to become a very important part. Women, women's health and gender equity is another important area. So JCHO, that group that accredits hospitals, changed the rules in 2001 said you, you have to assess spiritual health. So there has to be some type of spiritual assessment. And whether you go to church and how many times isn't good enough. So that, that might have been a simple way when I grew up as a medical student. So some of it's around values to the person, whatever that might mean. And uh, how do you do a more comprehensive one if you needed to? 
So this literally comes out of the guidance from JCHO. So if you look at the brief assessment, I was wondering if spirituality or religion is important to you. Would that be a good question? Are there certain beliefs and practices that you find particularly helpful in dealing with problems? Wondering if you go to church or some other type of community uh, activity that uh, connects you with your religious faith. Are there any concerns? So that was the recommendation initially. So a variety of tools have come up. Doctors like acronyms so they can try to remember it on, on the spot. So this is the FICA spiritual assessment. So you have faith, importance or influence, community, how you might address or apply it. Hope, that's a good one to remember. Sources of hope, hope is good. Organized religion, personal spiritual practices, effect on medical care issues, including end of life. Another one is spirit dual history. So the spirit part, and you can see the acronym spelled out there. Again, this is more to give you a sense as doctors were trying to figure out how do we put this into healthcare, how do we operationalize it other than a general conversation or a practical thing like mindfulness or whatever you do in your faith. Exploring questions of meaning, value, and relationships. That's pretty common on all of the different assessments of spiritual health. Then the JCHO says, well, you know, if you get any positive response that you ought to dig deeper, here's a long list of 15 questions you could possibly look at. So we're not going to go through them today. Uh, Any of you could come up to me afterward and I could share with you how to access these questions if you had uh, interest to learn more. But you can see as you read them, they either would be a good question to get in the hospital or not. When I taught at the Princeton Theological Seminary, it was a lot of fun. Can you imagine mixing doctors in training and, uh, and theologians, seminary students? Uh, it was like oil and vinegar. So the psychiatrists particularly thought, oh, we have really open-ended questions. And then when they met the theological students, it was like, woo. Uh, so these were some of the questions that I got from that seminary that I have found helpful. Uh, But you can see it's not a direct one even at looking at spiritual. What helps you get through tough times? Who do you turn to when you need support? What meaning does this experience have for you? So life isn't just the easy beach, beautiful sunset with the calm ocean. Sometimes it's stormy underneath and above the water. So how would you know that someone's in spiritual distress? So here is uh, a list of items that come from a variety of sources, but and then from my own thinking about it, too. Uh, is there something unfair? Why me, God? Why did this happen? Uh, unworthiness. I don't want to be a burden on the family. Hopelessness. What's the point? Guilt and punishment. Being punished, issues of forgiveness, self-forgiveness, isolation, anger, vulnerability, confusion, abandonment. It might 
be a sense of isolation or withdrawal, sense of hopelessness, even anger at God. So one of the t- you know the hard parts when you're learning to be a doctor is how do you be present with someone who's dying? Many cultures it's just very normal, and some cultures it, people become more distant from seeing that experience. So you know, imagine your parents when they passed. What was that like for you? What was that like for them that you remember? What sources of strength did they go to during that time? Again, another longer list of specific issues that one could ask, look at, that relate to end of life. So, anybody in the room a PK? I'm the only PK in the room. PK, preacher's kid. Oh, GPK? All right. So when you hang out with PKs, PKs, it's like being an AA or something. You know, you just say, oh, I'm a PK. It's like, oh, there's a lot of things you don't have to say. But my dad, would, I can remember growing up, he'd say, you know, they come at Easter and come at Christmas. And they come when they're born and catechism and when they die. That's the, when you expect a, a lot of... So those are all linked to like spiritual moments for people. But for many of you, maybe in the room, those aren't the only moments. And again, in other faiths, there might be different days, different holidays, but uh, the idea of birth, somewhere in the early life of learning values, marriage, and death are kind of common times to think about spiritual things. Of course, as a psychiatrist, I think you've got to separate out depression sometimes and look for differences that might be different than spiritual distress. This comes from AA, uh, from the big book. Spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. In the words of recovery, whether it's an addiction or mental health, it's not about a cure It's about living a life with meaning and purpose, self-esteem, dignity, commitment to personal growth, do the best that you can, adjusting your own attitudes, feelings, growing, living day by day. I think we can all be in recovery. How many of you know the 12 steps? So, small number. Uh, Yeah, these 12 steps are used from AA, but have been adopted by many other self-help groups, and even in therapy. What's my problem? I can't do it on my own, so I'm going to need some source of power to help me. I've got to make some decisions, reflect on my life, discuss with someone else what it might be. Maybe there's some quirks I have. What are they? How do I address them? Maybe I haven't been so uh, friendly to other people. How do I make amends uh, there? And how do I take a personal inventory more regularly, admit when I'm wrong? And there is the prayer and meditation step, 11, and that's very personal, what that might be. It's it's a short section of the book. And then how do I help others? 
Now, one could live a life of 12 steps even if one wasn't having an alcohol problem. Uh, One of my uh, research projects is in uh, Norway and Finland, and now it's all all over the world looking at open dialogue. How do we link uh, families better into healthcare? And how do we uh, listen well? And for me, a lot of those moments and engagements tap in also on spiritual health and uh, connection. Doctors, if you've seen in the news, about 50% are burned out. So it's like a public health problem. Electronic health record, many reasons why there's this burnout. So I bring it up more as we think of both spiritual distress, but also different aspects of burnout. So these are, this is the most common assessment tool used for burnout, but this could be done for lawyers, accountants, it doesn't, it's not just for doctors. Emotional exhaustion, cynicism, professional efficacy, questioning it. So when I show, this is the actual questionnaire. So you could look at this and say, hmm, how burned out am I? So when I show this, you know, a lot of times the doctors will hear these scores, but you don't know where the questions came from, so it's sort of like a black box. But these would be ones that, as you just browse the list. So how might we strengthen ourselves, our wellness? Uh, what are some strategies? There isn't one way to uh, do it for all of us. Serenity prayer, which came out of one context, got adopted in AA, and is now all over the world in different ways. Um, this is uh, books that I use in leadership of bringing mindfulness in as a way to help with leadership training. If you look at people who are coached, the CEOs of the hospital, what's their biggest worry is self-awareness, interpersonal relationships. And that's what they want help with. So in a way, if spirituality is values, what is your true north? When are you at your best? What routines help you to be at your best? Is there something around spiritual health activities that might help you to be at your best? Should we be looking at that as we look at outcomes of improving quality of life? What outcomes would you like to have? What would you pick up? What would you let go? So that little slide there... Uh, a professional coach would be using with leaders to help them set a path. So what are some common spiritual tools? Some of these might be ones you use. Prayer, community, meditation, readings, role models, music, yoga, gardens, guided imagery, poetry, all different ways to tap. Other routines you might use in your wellness. I'm impressed with the work that Dillip's doing in the center here to really impress upon wellness for all of us and how do we fit that in. Mindfulness practice, a small portion of it might be a formal practice, morning, evening, another time of day, where you did something like what we did in a guided way. But the informal practice is all the time. How are you more present? in a moment. 
So if you're taking a shower, that's the time where I figure out all the, how to solve all my world's problems. But what if I just enjoyed the shower and felt the water and was fully present? Uh, you drove here today, some of you, most of you. Uh, do you remember every street you were on? No, there, sometimes you wonder, how did I get from here to there? And so how is, can one be more present? That would be the informal practice. So when I teach doctors mindfulness, this is what they like the best. Because I tell them it's no extra work. You just have to be present in doing one thing. It's like the anti-multitasking um, uh, that many of us have gotten good at. My kids think it's a skill set to be multitasking versus really being present. How many of you have seen this meditation before? All right, so maybe one out of five of you. Uh, common one used in teaching meditation. So one might get in the same mindful mode that we were in earlier and closing our eyes, may I be happy, may I be safe, may I be healthy, may I live with ease. And then thinking about you, Someone you love, someone you know, someone you don't know well, someone you have difficulties with. So the compassion within as well as to others. Uh, We all can probably think of someone in each one of those zones. So each of us has their own sort of hobby and journey. And so for me, uh, one of them is music. So my friend there, Kokoman, taught me African drumming. And so while he was teaching me this, I said, you know, I've learned polyrhythmic, complicated uh, West uh, African drumming. This is so mindful and meditative. He goes, well, that's, I'm from Ghana, and that's one of our versions. I said, you ought to write a book on mindful drumming. He said, what are you, crazy? I said, well, I, you know, I take notes when I'm learning from you, so you can have all my notes. Here's the book. So how do you build this into your life? And, you know, through friendships, you don't know what might happen. Here we are all together today. We've had some unexpected moments. So we'll have another one. So I'm going to ask, you know, I can't take you all quickly to uh, New Mexico on a bright day. So I'm going to just bring a little bit of uh, flute music into the room. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I invite you to do that. We're winding down. Again, noticing your breath. And now with the intention, noticing the notes, the spaces between the notes.
Noticing your breath. Being curious what arose as the music played. Thinking about this journey we are on in this room here today together. Thinking of the person to your left and right. Maybe you know them, maybe you don't. Feeling the presence of others in the room. All on a journey like yourself. Being curious what arose, even with these words. Invite you to open your eyes. We're back to calm water. So as earlier in the time we were thinking of our spiritual health, uh, what, what words or what people arose in your mind? Dalai Lama. Dalai Lama. Emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence. You could feel that. Sedona. Sedona. Arizona. Others. Relaxation. Relaxation. Peace. Peace. Hope. Hope. Being present. Being present. Great. Empathy. Empathy. Thank you. Connectedness. Connected. Thank you. Self-awareness. Self-awareness. Great. Lots of great, powerful words. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.